Welcome to this week's episode of the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. I'm your host, Chris Delaney, and I'm the author of The Naked Opus, Growing Your Family Wealth for the Long Term, available everywhere on Amazon. This podcast features interviews with thought leaders, authors, and leading experts in the estate planning and business succession fields. It's intended for people planning to transition their wealth and for their trusted advisors. The idea of Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast is to move beyond mere tactics and dig deeper into the purpose, strategy, and intentionality of estate planning and family business transition planning. Each episode will feature an organizing question framed as a what-if question. Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast is available on many platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. This week's special guest is Brent Van Paris. As the Central Group Practice Leader for BDO Business Transition Services, Brent provides business transition and exit strategy planning for family-owned and private businesses across Ontario and Manitoba. He's an experienced facilitator, helping business families and stakeholder groups communicate and collaborate their futures together. This week, Brent will be answering the question, what if my family needs a family participation agreement? This is a really interesting conversation, and I know everyone with a family business or anyone who advises a family business will appreciate this week's topic. So now, let's join Brent Van Paris. Brent, welcome to the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. We've known each other for for quite a few years now. I've had the uh, uh, benefit of many long chats in this uh, in the subject matter area with you, and and thought you'd be just a, a wonderful resource to share with our listeners. Um, and you you've got so many great anecdotes that that you're able to uh, able to share and uh, bring some I think some tricky concepts sometimes to life for people and make it accessible for them. What I like to, 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 to do with this show is I, I want my, um, my listeners to, to know who it is they're, they're listening uh, to if they don't actually know you. Um, and so I like to have uh, the, the guests share with us how they became involved in the space that is the subject matter that we're talking about for the day. And, and today we're going to be talking about family participation agreements. So I'm curious about how, you became involved in the the family business or family enterprise space. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've, most of my career has been spent as a uh, as a chartered accountant, now a CPA, and so during that period of time, it's it's been a few decades. Um, a lot of my clients were family family owned businesses, probably most of them, and so as time rolled on, I developed this this interest in. And what made them tick? Because I, I saw family businesses that were very successful, relationships were fabulous, and, and all the all the the transitions, all of the things that they all of the challenges they come upon, they managed them very well and, and held their family together. But I also saw others that uh, really didn't do a very good job of it. And it, it emotionally it was very difficult for them, relationally it was very difficult for them, and and you know because of things that were happening within the family, the business didn't really thrive and vice versa. The business, if the business wasn't thriving, the family uh, didn't really, didn't really survive actually intact. So I, I thought, wow, this is a, this is a field that could use some, uh, some help. And I did started to do the research and um, 
And so I, I developed a, a side skill uh, that grew on me in, uh, in family business advisory. So uh, I enjoy the space and uh, I enjoy the people that I've, I've met in there. So. And, and what is it that's, um, you know, you mentioned that there's this um, uh, dynamic between the business and the family and the family and the business. I see that you're uh, uh, like myself and, and, and uh, some of our listeners and previous guests, your family enterprise advisor. Um, what is it that's different about, you know, the, the, the um, conversation that you would be having with your clients, not necessarily just because you're a family enterprise advisor, but because of the research you did into this space. Like what, what is the, what is it that you're listening for that's differently or what is it that you're uh, bringing to in terms of process, maybe even to the conversation that is a little different than what you used to do, say, as a sort of as a standard uh, practicing CPA? Yeah, fair enough. You know, in the, in the past, I mean, accountants are technical people, lawyers are technical people. We believe that most solutions can be solved by agreements and by tax plans and by very methodical approaches to to moving moving people through challenges. And uh, so I was very good at the technical pieces, some of the tax and some of the structural corporate structural elements to it, and, and a little bit of governance. But I found through my research, my studies, the end of at the FAA program for sure is that the main challenges for family-owned businesses were not in the tax planning and they were not in the, the legal and corporate structuring. They were in the, the communication areas and the conflict management and the and uh, trying to maintain some level of familyness while still operating a business. And uh, the FEA really emphasized that and, and, and reinforced all of the learnings that I had had before. So, you know, the, the, the family system and how it intersects with the business system and, and how you cope with that is, uh, is very important in a family enterprise. And families, honestly, most of them need some assistance or at least some mechanisms to, uh, to help them through that. And I think the FEA, and I, I also um, went through a program called Most Trusted Advisor, which was put on by the Success Care Program. Uh, Grant Robinson, who's now retired, was the leader of that. And I took some programs with John Fast, Dr. John Fast, a, a well-known practitioner in the area, and also the Canadian Association of Family Enterprises, which is a precursor to, uh, to the Family Enterprise Exchange. So all of that is, has helped a lot. And it's, it's shown me that the solutions for family enterprises uh, although the technical aspects are very important and must be paid attention to, the main challenges that family enterprises face are relational, emotional communication, and, and the other aspects of it. And and you and I have um, I've tossed the term out now, and and now you've you're using it. When we say family enterprise, how is that um, different or? Uh, uh, how is that maybe even an expanded concept on what uh, a listener might be thinking of as a family business? Well, and I, I think you'll Or is it different? <laughs> there, there, there is a difference. It's more of a, an add-on. Um, if you were focused solely on the business, you might miss some of the other issues that families face when they're looking at uh, how we transition family wealth and, and values and uh, and all the social capital through through generations. 
And um, the, the business, you know, in a, the context of a family enterprise, the business represents uh, one piece of the family wealth. And it also, you know, it does involve a lot of the family involvement and focus, but it's not necessarily for all family members. So when you look at a family enterprise, you look at the totality of the family wealth. It could be investments, vacation properties, and in some you know, high net worth families, there's foundations, charitable, charitable pursuits. Uh, there are, and then there are social, social capital, which could be faith, uh, community service, the values that the family has. Um, there's certainly physical capital or, and sometimes emotional capital, which could be the family cottage, some art heirlooms, things like that. So families actually transition a lot more than a, just a business. In my main, main focus is business because that's the world that I grew up in. That's what I know best business and, and the ownership of businesses, but the real family enterprise is much wider than that and has some tangible, tangible assets and some intangible assets. Well, and it was interesting, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the success care program that you uh, uh, would have been an early part of with uh, Grant Robinson. I first encountered that at a conference in Florida. Oh, I mean, it could be almost 13 years ago now uh, uh, when, when, when I uh, first heard himself and, and Daphne speaking. And, and honestly, my, I, I thought I was... I, I wasn't sure what I was hearing. I wasn't sure what I was seeing because I really didn't have, they were talking about the, this, uh, this, this process that you're discussing of viewing the, the, the business as part of a broader, broader enterprise with a lot of different moving parts. And I thought to myself, you know, this is, this is the, um, potentially anyways, this is the, the sinews between the muscles uh, of, of some of the advice that I had been been trying to give that was missing that I hadn't hadn't I, I I I'm not sure I'd ever turned my mind to it and 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 part of what we're talking about today with with a participation agreement is building some of that strength. Um, I was amazed at at what was possible and and really where the deficits in my own uh, my my own learning were and um, I'm I'm curious you know. Today, is there some consensus uh, that you find, um, like this would have been, when you got into this, and certainly when I got into this, it's, it's, it's old, but it's new um, in many ways. People weren't sure uh, how to respond to it. You know, was, is, this a, is this a usable conversation? Is this, a, uh, is there really any sort of, um, well, what's the, the word I guess that I'm looking for would be, uh, rigor to it you know it does it does it have process that can be um uh replicated across different families are you starting to see that there's some consensus now uh that that this is this is useful and that it's something that really any business that that intends to be intergenerational or transgenerational uh, should be should be building into their business planning, succession planning, estate planning, all elements. Uh, is there is there a, a growing sense that this is becoming um, uh, an important uh, part of all the planning? It's not something you you bring in only when there's conflict in a situation or trouble on the horizon. You know, I think that the field of the field of knowledge or the field of study is is still relatively new when you look at all fields of study. And I think the, a lot of the research started back in the 80s with, with um, 
uh, Renato Tagiri and, and John Davis and their, their work uh, um, around the three circle model. And so it's, it's not really ingrained in, in, the, in the whole family business sector. I, I think it's ingrained in the advisors. I do believe that there's a, a large community of advisors that do drink the Kool-Aid that believe that you know, family enterprises are unique and they're, they have challenges that, that other privately held enterprises don't have. And in order to keep the family unit intact, that they need to approach uh, transition and, and their, their evolution differently. I think that now families are starting to understand that the advisory community and, and some of the associations that their industries belong to are, are very concerned about transition and about the continuity of their, their industry. And if their industry is dominated by family ownership, then it's, it's in their interest, and it's certainly in government's interest, to sustain family-owned enterprises. So the education component is, has been ramped up over the last probably 10 to 15 years. So there is a, a general understanding out there. As far as process goes, I think process is still um, divergent. I think it's all over the map. And being, being an accountant by, by profession, I may be a little bit linear, so I try to bring process and structure to the way we help families move through that transition. The Success Care Program had methodology. Um, the FEA program has some methodology, but its strength, I think, is in its, in its uh, theoretical foundation for the work that you do. And I think FEAs that want to be in the field uh, will develop structure or, or find structure someplace else in their in their working lives. Um, but I, I think generally there has become more knowledge about it. I, unfortunately, some of the knowledge is around fear, the fear of if we don't do a good job, that can, you know, that can impact a family very negatively. And, and, and actually, you know, all the stories, the, uh, the airways are rife with families that have uh, imploded because they have not done a good job of managing that intersection between the family and the business. And, uh, and it's, it's sometimes tragic and, and heartbreaking. And uh, so hopefully the, the field that you and I are in will do something to change, change that uh, along the way. And, and, and you raise a really good point there when you say that, uh, you know, a lot of the knowledge is, is uh, circulates around fear. Um, my own impression has been that, that uh, you know, oftentimes this kind of advisory work is recommended when the, 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 the bridge is starting to fall down a little bit. And, and that's not, I mean, yes, that that is probably a, a, a good time to start looking at repairing the bridge if you can. But but um, that's not when the only time you should be building and reinforcing the, the structural integrity of the bridge. And so I, I I think what you've made clear there is that this really is something for healthy businesses and healthy uh, uh, family uh, enterprises that want to that maybe are years away yet from their transitional points. Uh, well, absolutely, and and it, the the pleasure you get out of working with a family that that you know, for lack of a better term, has it together. The family that has good communication and has mutual respect and can can you know 
kind of build good structure and good practices in the way they, they bring the family to the business. It's a, it's a pleasure to work with those types of families. And I think that most families can be that way if they, if they start to look at this early, if they, if they understand the special dynamics and this uniqueness of being a family that's also in business together. And if, they, if there's somebody internally, somebody inside that says, I like this and I'm gonna take this on, I'll be the champion for the family. And they, they start to understand and they start to share that knowledge with the other family members. There is, there is a way that awareness, that understanding makes all the difference in the world. So it doesn't have to be the fear of failure. It can be, well, what can our future be? What can we be like and what can we accomplish and how can we support our family members in whatever they do? Not just the business, but in all things that they do. And uh, we, can, we can build a, a family that has grounding and a foundation and its values and its beliefs and the way it approaches the business and the world and their professions and their relationships. I think it I think that the incentive is the more positive aspect of it. What can what can we be like as a family? And and that's where having an advisor like yourself uh, who is mindful of that is so important or working with a team of advisors who has at least one advisor uh, who, who can um, uh, sustain that sort of mindset because it, it this sort of planning uh, is really quite creative and quite generative it's it's intended as you said to sustain the natural strengths of the of the ecosystem of the family business it, it's not there to um it's not there to isolate and to and to uh invest in specific areas it's it's really there to make sure that the the three circles of the business are functioning in a healthy way and 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 that brings us to the three circles of the uh, of the family uh, of the family enterprise. That's sort of a, a key organizing principle that goes really well beyond just being a simple uh, visual that makes what's going on in a family business more uh, understandable to, to somebody when you're trying to explain it. It, it, it really is a, a very dynamic and three-dimensional ecosystem. Um, can you share with the listeners what the three-circle model reveals and maybe a little bit about how you work with it? Yeah, I think that three-circle model developed by Renato Taguri and, and John Davis back in, I think it was the 80s, 80s and 90s, they, it is, if, if there was ever a self-help tool for business families, that's it. Having an awareness or an understanding of that three-circle model and, and all of its implications uh, can be so uh, enlightening and, and so liberating to a family. It's uh, it is one of the base base concepts that we use in helping families understand and, and cope with their unique situations. So we educate uh, our family family business clients in the three circle model um, very early on in the process. And it's uh, it's concept. You know, I, I could stand up on the soapbox and go for quite a while on this. <laughs> I'm trying to make it brief because it it's uh, it it's is, quite it's, rich. Yeah, it is very rich, and and you can build some humor around it as well. The stories are are excellent. But I think from my perspective, what the three circle model uh, says is that families that are in business together live in three very distinct 
systems or worlds or in the, in the diagram context, circles. And each of these circles has very different objectives, very different ways of communicating and making decision, sometimes different members and different cultures within them. And uh, they are separate and distinct, but the complexity lies in the fact that they overlap. Decisions made in one of those circles inevitably affect the others. I mean, the analogy of the visual is you drop a stone in one of those ponds, the ripples go into the other two ponds. So the, the three circles are the most important being the family circle, the circle where the love hangs out, where you nurture and support your family members, the place that's safe, where everybody is equal. The family circle is very special. It's a unique system. I mean, it's absolutely unique to every family that I've ever met. They're all a little bit different and they communicate within that circle uniquely. Some families are very loud in their communication and some families are very quiet, reluctant to say anything for fear they, they hurt somebody's feelings. Other families bicker and argue and debate and, and whatnot. Other families criticize and, and you know, they're very dysfunctional and damaging sometimes. But the family system is unique in every family, very special place in most families. The other system, the other one of the others is the business circle itself or the management of the business, the place where you go to work, the place where you try to drive and achieve things, the place that makes the money. It's very, very different in there, very hard edged. It's a place where you're measured by sales, by gross profit, by cash flow, by, by debt structuring, working capital, things like that. You get into that business circle, hopefully through your ability, your skills, through merit. You earn your way into the business circle. Trouble is it intersects with that family circle and the family circle you are automatically a part of. If your name is Delaney, you're part of the Delaney family circle. Does that make you automatically part of the Delaney family business? In some families, the answer is yes. In other families, it's not necessarily. So families have to decide how that intersection is going to work. And, and without a doubt, families, the family circle influences the policies of the business and so a lot of the decisions that are made in the business. That can be extremely positive because families are powerful, families are stable, and the value system in a family, if it can be instilled in the business, can be very, very powerful and, and, and lead to business success. The third circle is the ownership circle, and the ownership circle is, I guess, primarily about the ownership of the business but it's also the ownership of, of the rest of the family wealth, the, the parents' wealth, the first generation wealth for the most part. And it's, its objectives, it's there to protect that family wealth, to build it, to use it in, 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 uh, you know, in, in the ways, hopefully, that reflect the family values. And it's, it's a little more guarded up in that ownership circle. And... Um, it's got to have its own set of objectives. It's got its own different people in there, which may be different from the people that are in the business circle. And it uh, may not include all of the family members. So some of the decisions that are made in the ownership circle may limit the business a little bit, 
you know, when you're protecting capital, the the owners of the of the wealth circle may have a little bit different perspective on risk than some of the new family members coming into the business. And in the middle, where all three of those circles intersect, is a little space in there that becomes very complicated. And often that's uh, that's the parent generation, the mom and dads or the uncles. And sometimes it's hard for them to, to know which hat they're wearing. And so if you happen to stumble into the wrong circle with the decision you're making, or if, if you haven't prepared one of the circles for a decision you're making in another, what comes out is conflict. And the whole purpose of the three circle model and the whole purpose of what we do as FEAs, family business advisors, is to try to reduce the opportunity for conflict, try to help families cope with the complexity of those three circles and how they, how they intersect. One of the, the interesting things about the, and, and that may be the best explanation of the three circle model I've ever heard. So I, I, I may clip that explanation, Brent, out and, and post that on its own as well. Um, I've done it a few times. I, I suppose you have, but, but you also understand it and that comes out in, in your explanation as well. And, and as I was reflecting as you were speaking there, you know, one of the interesting things that is often overlooked, a lot of our listeners for this podcast are advisors and, and, um, and they're at, uh, quite, um, you know, this, this space, uh, the family enterprise space is not necessarily uh, the space where people coming right out of law school or right out of, uh, uh, their accounting training and, 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 uh, whatever profession they're entering this ecosystem from, they're not usually doing it right out of the gate. And they might be, but, but they're not usually doing it right out of the gate. It tends to be, um, there's a little bit of maturity in terms of career experience that comes with that. And, and what's really interesting and, and what I often uh, have to remind myself to remind those that I might be talking to is that their own, you know, there, there, there are, there are entry points in, in each of those three circles that are, the primary realms of certain professions. So for example, the ownership circle, um, you alluded to this, that's often thought of as, as, uh, you know, there's a lot of power there that goes with ownership, a lot of emotion. There's a lot of legacy. There's a lot of other concepts that go with that as well, but it often tends to be dominated by lawyers. That's, you know, I'll go do a shareholders agreement or I'll go do, you know, something that controls entry and exit and re-entry into uh, the ownership uh, rights of a a family business. And um, other areas of the three circle model have other sort of key, uh, key entry points. So I think accountants would be in the ownership area as well. You, 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 your profession kind of, at least in Canada, interestingly, you know, you, you, you enter at a variety of different key points. And I think that's, what's so special about how this is evolving is that we're getting now this, this broad, uh, sense of the importance of thinking of the family business as a system. And instead of having those narrow professional uh, technical uh, uh, perspectives at the beginning of the, wherever the, the, the professional enters uh, the, 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 um, the system from, we're starting to see that 
they're, they have a broader view in, in any event because of this mindset. And so it's, it's making advisors generally, uh, uh, you know, they have this tremendous depth of knowledge and experience, but now they're getting the, the, the width of the knowledge as well, the breadth of the knowledge. And, and it's, it's interesting because to circle back and, and, and I'd be interested to know what your, your viewpoint is on this, you know, I, as a lawyer, um, entering the ecosystem, it's hard. It, it's, it's a different, if you're a practicing lawyer, it's very difficult because you have clients uh, and, and you have to, so who is your client in that particular, uh, in that particular engagement? And it's very hard for a lawyer to act for a client when that client is sort of a, an ecosystem of three circles with, with different, different interests, different goals uh, that, that, as you mentioned, are having to be managed by an awareness of all of these different perspectives. Um, that entry into the, into the, the system is something that probably has to be given some thought to as well in the sense of who am I working with? Am I, if I'm a family business owner, who am I working with in this system? Would that be a fair comment? Yeah. And you know, you, I, I think there's different levels of involvement in, in the, the whole family enterprise, or if we're talking about transition planning, that intergenerational transition, I think that there's very, there's many, what if you call them subject experts, yeah. And so pick your profession. If it's, if it's law, then, you know, the, the shareholder agreements, the, the wills, the different levels of agreements, very important that, that, that lawyer be versed in his technical profession, but having an appreciation of the, the, the family dynamics and the, the three circle model and then the whole systems theory in there, understanding that the work that they do in that ownership circle will impact the family and may impact the business is, is a, an asset. It's a real advantage to those people. But I do think that there's a place, and this is where I generally hang out, uh, for a, a somebody with an overall perspective. My, my career has given me a breadth is a great term for it, uh, a breadth of experiences and, and hopefully a breadth of knowledge in many different areas and it was kind of capped off by the success care program and cafe and the FEA program. So I was able to bring that family uh, systems knowledge into it. So my role is to recognize, recognize when, when subject experts, technical experts are, are, you know, going to be valuable to the process and, and, you know, help guide them and help the family develop plans to best utilize them in context of the, of, the entirety of the of the transition plan of the visions that they're trying to achieve as a family and as a business and as a, and as a wealth or an ownership group. So I think there's absolutely, you know, that the technical aspects of it are critical. They they are you know they they can influence greatly how a transition takes place. But the overall planning and and the you know coping with those three circles, developing the visions, developing the, the strategy that's going to be used, the things that the family is going to do on the way forward, takes a, somebody with a, an overall perspective and an appreciation of, of all of the elements of those circles. And so it tends to be less transactional uh, and, and a little bit more process. And as you, and you mentioned, relational as well. Um, having a, having a, a uh, high functioning multidisciplinary team 
uh, or at least having uh, uh, one of the, the advisors being someone who, as, as you just described, is, is um, both aware and, and willing and, and, and desirous of, of uh, bringing that breadth of, of uh, expertise into the, into the system is a huge asset. And, is, is, and, and having that, that team, having that ability to reach around and say, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think we need uh, this type of person, you know, maybe a mediator or a conflict manager to deal with this. Um, th- their bench strength uh, is, is just as important sometimes to the, the family enterprise itself uh, as the advisor themselves, who they, who they work with, who they bring, uh, and their own methodology of working. And I guess where I'm heading with this, Brent, is, is that um, uh, you've probably changed your practice as well, you know, in terms of uh, uh, how you engage other advisors when you're working with a family and, and all of this is heading towards, you know, that we're talking about a family participation agreement. We're, we're really talking about dialing back the engagement on the timeline with a family further and further uh, in advance of the actual creation of a technical document. And that's probably something that, um, you really enjoy because you're you're gonna you're going to go right back to the very beginnings. You know this this podcast is called Inception Family Wealth Hour. You're going to go back to the inception of the purpose of the wealth. In some cases, why are we even together as a family uh, in this business? And that, that those words are very true because in our process, I, I have, I've always kind of likened it. I use the analogy of a, a funnel, and uh, funny because I've, I've used this in helping families understand the process or the journey they're going to go through. And, and my team members, I, I would use that in our discussions. And, and uh, we were doing a presentation to a, a family business group and I wasn't there. So my colleague, Brian Huck was, was making the presentation and I'll be darned if he didn't bring a funnel, a big, <laughs> massive funnel and he took up on stage with him and explained the process through that. And he, I think he called it the Van Paris funnel, but uh, I, I took that out. It didn't really schmeck with the marketplace. So it is, it, the funnels does live and we use that in our presentations quite often. But the concept is that the top of the funnel is wide and it's, it's, uh, it's blurry up there. And in, to, put, to put ingredients in the funnel, we want to put ingredients like values, the family values, what's important to them, how they live their lives and view the world and treat other people. That's the strength of a family is its value system. So we can try to capture that and, and become aware of that and, and really solidify that. And the vision, what do we want to be as a family? What are we trying to accomplish? What do we want to be as a business? Where are we going? What do we want to, how do we want to treat the wealth? You know, and how does our vision reflect those values? So sometimes it feels to a, especially to a, an entrepreneur who's very driven and, and very practical. Sometimes these discussions about values and visions uh, and relationships and emotions are uh, frustrating and perhaps it, and, and seemingly not relevant. But it's so important to build that foundation. So at the top of the funnel starts to collect that. And as we move down the funnel, we start to talk maybe a little bit more. Okay, well, what are the challenges we're facing? We've got a vision. We understand our value system. What's standing between us and achieving those visions? So we have some challenges. 
the challenges might be around conflict or communication. They might be technical about like about tax. They might be that the business can't support a lot of family members. There could be a number of things within that challenge list. And then we start to look at solutions. So we're coming down the funnel. We're getting a little more clear as we go down the funnel. So we start to develop strategy. What are the things we're going to do to, to try to address these challenges or address these unanswered questions so that we can reach that vision? And that's all of a sudden it starts to become clear because now we've got a set of things that we're going to do and we can put them in order and we can assign responsibilities and we can figure out step by step how we're going to get them done. And if we do a good job at this, we get down to the bottom of the funnel then the technical people come and they can deliver their expertise in context of a plan, of a vision, and of a set of strategies. So everybody's, to use the analogy, singing from the same song sheet near the bottom of the funnel, and things are very crystal clear. And by the time it gets to the bottom of the funnel, we're signing agreements and we're implementing policies and, and processes. We're transferring ownership and leadership. And so it's crystal clear there. But it is a bit of a journey, and so the funnel was a, a nice analogy to try to try to explain that. Well, and that is that's a really good analogy because it helps to, you know, to I don't want to belabor the the the, the analogy, but at the end, you know, you're you're bringing the planning. The, the, the planning starts when you get to the fine tip of, of understanding the direction and the purpose of that direction. Um, and that's at the bottom of the funnel. And, and, and if you try to bolt in, you know, if you try to do a, a shareholders agreement or a sale agreement or an estate freeze, uh, something like that, starting at the bottom of that funnel, you've skipped all of those key steps that you've just identified that, that start at the top with a very broad uh, and, 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 uh, and it's a circle conveniently enough, most funnels, if you know, if you look at it from the, from above, that is, whole, yeah. all of those circles have been missed. <laughs> and, and so what are you actually, what, it's very hard to build it upwards. Uh, it's a lot easier to build it downwards with that information down it's, to the fine tip of the funnel. And it can be, and I, I, I really, I caution some of the family members that this may be frustrating and the journey may be long and, and you may wonder why at points in time, but and sometimes that's a difficult to, it's, it's easy to say, but it's sometimes tough to learn or to, to live. And so you try to encourage the families to trust the process you know, to pay attention to all of the steps, um, go down through the funnel and, and, you know, work at each one of them because the journey can be a little long. You know, sometimes transitions need to take place at a fast pace depending on circumstances. Um, but if you have several years to take, to take you on the journey, you can do a better job. And, um, really what we're trying to do in a family enterprise, as, as you know, is try to build that culture, the culture of en enabling uh, the next generation right from an early stage and building a culture of succession and uh, succession of leadership and eventually succession of ownership and wealth. If you can build that culture, then hopefully that family can survive, you know, whatever it's doing intact for 
multiple generations. And I thought it was, um, I mean, I, I really appreciate that you mentioned that entrepreneurs can find this very frustrating because it, it does feel like it's something that's moving slowly and it does feel like it's, it's not a forward, uh, but a very retrospective uh, process. But in fact, you're not creating anything that doesn't already exist. You're, you, well, you are in some ways, but what you're actually doing is, is you're helping the entrepreneur articulate what they've already baked into their pie. Uh, you, you know, I, I, they come to their business with their values and they come to their business with their, with their vision and they've just never bothered to spend any time articulating it. And, uh, and all you're really doing is helping them tease out what they've already baked into their pie. And, you know, you're really getting to, 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 well, let's, let's go back from the pie you baked here and actually create the recipe here. So we can, we can build this and understand, you know, maybe there were other ingredients we could have added that would have enhanced it a little bit, but having that recipe is, is that is a key to succession because uh, that allows you to transmit to the, you know, I'll stick with that analogy again, to transmit to the next generation, the ability to keep baking this pie. Because now, now the, the element of luck has been taken out to some extent, and you've put in the, the steps that, that were so important and so fundamental to the success of the business. Would that be a fair thing to say? It, it, it definitely is. And you know, a recipe like that is a form of, of structure. And um, in order to help families cope with those three circles and their, their intersections, we encourage them to, for lack of a better word, build structure or build recipes. So kind of, and this, this again, this is kind of contrary to the entrepreneurial spirit, but it is about building in some policy and some rules, if you will, about how we deal with each other and, and how we approach operating the business and how we approach making critical decisions in the ownership or family circles. So bringing a little, little bit of formality, however you can do that with your family, into how you operate the business and how you manage the intersection of those circles. So structures might be a um, you know, role description. Structures might be agendas and minutes at, uh, at, at meetings, whether it's a family meeting, an owner's meeting, or a management meeting. Structures uh, might be what we're going to talk about here soon, a family participation policy. Um, those things are structures to kind of formalize a little bit and give you a way to cope with the complexities of being part of a family business. And there's you're not going to get rid of the emotions. You're not going to get rid of your feelings and you're not going to avoid all conflict. Business brings conflict with it. It's natural. It's actually healthy if you manage it properly because it, it brings innovation. It brings change. It brings evolution, but it's how you deal with that, how you can address it and acknowledge, acknowledge, address, and then most importantly, get over it and move on. Structure can help you do that, as well as attitude and awareness. But that's that's part of helping to recreate that recipe. And you're right; you're going to take the structure or take the things that you're that uh, you're going to help the family build. But it is based on all of the foundational elements that they already have. Our job is to pull those out, put them in, you know, organize them, and get them operating at their at their peak. Well, and and. Um... I think that that's really important. You mentioned that, that 
the conflict is is natural it's there uh i i recorded a podcast yesterday with another guest and and she spoke about how it's really important that uh, families understand that it is natural and that it does exist in every every family and it's it's not a reason not to do the planning um and that you should actually lean into it a little bit and and say okay as you mentioned you know how how do we how do we de-escalate risk here and how do we manage opportunity? And so we're really not talking about avoiding conflict. We're looking at how to manage the, the, the conflict that will exist and, and to do better with that. So you've, you've said, uh, talked about the three circle model and within each of those circles, um, there's going to be a decision making uh, need and there's going to be, we sometimes call that governance um, and, and, and that has some other broader elements to it as well. And then there's going to be independent communication in each of those three circles as well, different, different cultures of communication. Um, and this brings us to the, the topic of the week, which is what if my family business needs a family participation agreement? Can you share with our listeners what, what is meant by a family participation agreement? Sure. Yes. This probably is, you know, mid to lower end of that funnel. We're starting to get, we're using the family participation policies to generate some clarity and certainty. And what we're trying to do, and this is a beautiful tool to link that family circle with the other two, because we can bring in the, the values of the family, the principles of the family, the way they view the world, the way they view family member involvement in the business and the way the purpose or the um, the you know that the the way family uh, treats their wealth and understands their wealth. So in a in a nutshell, the the family participation policies are a set of guidelines that um, can be used to help the next generation understand what the criteria is for becoming part of the business, for joining the business as a career on a full time basis. So it, 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 it starts with a philosophy of, of how we feel families should be involved in the business and what's important to us as a business family. And it then starts to move into the principles of how can we be, how can family members be employed by the business? What criteria do they have to uh, meet in order to be employed by the business? And these can be qualitative criteria like, um, like integrity and, and work ethic and and drive and um, it, you know communication abilities uh, harmony things like that but can also be qualitative like like education and skill sets and uh, abilities so you can start to define the base level criteria by which a family member can actually have a career with the business and again, you're, you're going to start to examine your own philosophy on do all family members have a right to have a position at the business or do, must they accomplish things or earn their way into the business? And then you look at it from the business perspective, does the business have to make room for all family members that want to work here or will family members be invited based on our, the need of the business? We need... A, uh, we need a salesperson or we need a production manager. And so is the family part of that selection process? 
So this, this uh, paradox of uh, merit versus entitlement comes to play when you're developing out your policies around how family members can join the business as a career employee. So it helps you define the boundaries of that circle. And, and, I, and sorry, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Keep going. No, that's fine, Chris. I was just going to say, I mean, that is a, um, that's a, that's a huge, uh, uh, I mean, you've described something that and maybe it's my own imagination. I don't think so. That's, that's a, an enormous conversation. There's a lot that would go into that. Where would you, where would you get started with somebody on developing a family or, or a, you know, how to, how, how does someone like yourself get involved in the, ecosystem of a family to develop one of these, uh, uh, one of these uh, participation agreements or participation policies? Most often, maybe might be the point of entry, for example. Most often it's in the context of an overall uh, transition plan and transition for the leadership and ownership of the business. So it's, a, it's one of the strategies in there on the journey. And again, it's, 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 you know, kind of mid-level in that, in that funnel because we're building a base for uh, family employment policies. And uh, so continuing on that, those employment policies, family member employment policies, once a family, it, it can provide guidelines around hiring policies or hiring process. Do we, do we have them submit resumes and do we put them through an interview process? Um, and then it can go through rules. How do you, how do you, how do you help family members figure out which rules are best for them? Do we use behavioral or cognitive testing like like Kobe or Strengths Finder to help guide them towards their role? Do we, we want to support them and help them become the best possible uh, employee or, or business manager they can? So let's develop some policies around how we guide them through their careers. How do we compensate family members? How do we make those decisions? Compensation can be a very controversial uh, subject in a in a business family, and so how do we how do we compensate family members? Is it market value? Is there some premium because you're a family member? Are, are all family members paid the same despite their jobs and their skills? Those policies help you to be very clear on how we're going to treat family members. Then we talk about the the concept of leadership. What does it take to lead? What do we look for in, in our leaders in the family business? How do we select leaders within the business? And so all of those guidelines can help. Uh, I think it's important for a business family to be very clear on what is expected of the next generation wanting to work within the business, but it's also clear, has to be clear to the, the next generation what it looks like and what they can expect on their career path. They have a lot of choice out there to, in today's work environment. They, the, the up and coming generation can work virtually anywhere in any field, and there's lots of opportunity for them out there. The family business, their, their path to success needs to be clear in the family business. The family participation policies help with that. So that's the employment side of it. Then you look to ownership. What kind of guidelines or policies should we have around family members owning the business? And it's just, this is tricky because um, this is part of the distribution of family wealth. 
the ownership of the business and policies around at what stage can family members own? What must they have accomplished? Do they have to be leaders in the business or can they be you know, mid-level employees? Do they actually have to be active in the business to own or can they be passive owners? Um, do they have to pay for their ownership interests and how much might they have to pay? Um, how do we deal with each other as owners? How might you exit ownership? How do we protect the ownership from death and disability and disagreement? So we start to develop guidelines around that. So it's foundational, it's plain language. It's, it's based on what the family believes that's important around family member involvement in the business. And, but it's such an important foundation for the things that come later on for the, 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 uh, the more technical aspects of the bottom of the funnel. Well, and you've described something, you know, my, my own uh, uh, mind went straight. You mentioned that it was foundational uh, and you were talking about on the ownership side. Uh, I can see this kind of a conversation being incredibly valuable uh, to the development of a shareholders agreement or a buy-sell agreement uh, for a, a family business that is truly accepted by everybody, uh, you, you know, where it's not imposed from one, one group of owners or one generation down to another generation, but it's got a real organic um, uh, sense of uh, a sense of acceptance. You know, there'll always be people that don't, don't like the, the totality of what's happening, but, but they at least understand what's happening and, and they're not blindsided by it or confused by what it all means. So I would imagine that when you're saying foundational, this is the kind of effort, the kind of work that families should put in, in advance of doing a technical document like a shareholders agreement. And it would be very helpful for that, I would imagine. It's a stepping stone and it's, it's, it's educational and it, it has its roots in the family values and their beliefs. And they, that's how you can link that into some of the more, uh, the other two circles. It is a perfect linking exercise between the family and what's important to the family and how they operate their business and how they, they own their wealth and how they transition the leadership and the, and the family ownership or, or wealth. It's, it's great for that. And when you start to build those principles or guidelines, you're exactly right. They translate extremely well into the development of um, the technical things like a shareholders agreement. How do we get in? So now we start to distill that down and develop the, the language or the legal, the legal provisions about the shareholders agreement. And um, so it's entrance, how do we get in? Most importantly, exits, how do we get out, whether it be voluntary or involuntary, the death, the disability, the disagreement, the, the divorce, things like that. So the, the guidelines that you developed in the family participation policies start to manifest themselves into the legalese of the shareholders agreement. And yes, everybody understands. And, and if you can, again, you link those back to the family beliefs, the values, then it this is a document that we can sign because it reflects what we believe and how we want to treat each other as owners of this business. But it also, you know, it helps develop employment policies and it can be used not just to employment of family members, but we can 
we can use this for general employment policies on, on all of our people and how we, how we treat all of our people and our expectations of all of our people. So it, it can form a foundation for a little more formality in our management style and the, and the way we communicate. But I think the most important element of this is the clarity that it brings to the decision-making process around bringing family members into the business. So imagine a situation where you've got, uh, let's say you've got a brother and a sister that own a company. And it, it's, it's a nice company, it's got lots of employees and each of the brother and sister have their, have their children, they're growing up and, and now they're in that you know, 20 year old range, 20 to 23 years old and they're, they're looking at career decisions. Okay, so if we've got some family employment policies, we're pretty clear on what, are, what an employment career looks like with the family business. And now the business says, okay, we need a, I don't know, we need a production, somebody in production. We need somebody to come in and start ground level and be in production. And, and the sister's oldest child says, I would like to have that position. And the brother's oldest child says, I would also like to have that position. Now we've got a bit of a dilemma. We need to determine who we can hire because we really only need one person. And it may be that the family says, well, make room. Well, there's the family circle trying to influence the policies of the business circle. Yet these, the brother and sister have to make a decision on who they're going to hire. One or both or none. And so having these guidelines, having some clarity around the criteria that you must meet in order to be part of that family business uh, is important. It can help mitigate the opportunity for conflict between the brother and sister. And it, it depersonalizes that employment decision. So hopefully they get to hire the best person for the role. And what well, happens if... What happens if somebody else applies that's not a family member but are more qualified? Yeah, that's a difficult position as well. Because um, you know the cost of the cost of a faulty hire for for any business, family business or or otherwise, is incredibly expensive. I mean, I I remember seven or eight years ago. Uh, uh, I heard a number bandied around at some events I was attending where the uh, average cost of bringing on an employee at a, at a sort of mid-level role was, was anywhere between forty-three dollars and $50,000. And that's what it was going to cost just to onboard somebody new. Um, these are the decision to bring somebody into an employment uh, uh, position with any business is both economic and, and emotional and practical as well. It, it's, um, so you want to do everything you can to get it right. Yes, and yeah, those numbers are probably right. And then if, if, the, if the hire is not successful, then those numbers, they'll double or triple pretty easily for the impact on the organization if you want to break it down into dollar terms. Also within the family participation policies is I encourage some of the level of language or statement in there that says, if you're not hired by the business, whether you choose not to be hired or whether we do, can't accommodate your career here, you're still part of our family. We love you. We will support you in whatever path you take. And I think that in families, business families, that is an important um, statement. And I think it, it often goes unsaid. 
if you ask a, a parent, you know, parents, you know, do you support your child even if they don't want to join the family business? And the answer will be yes. But the draw, the identity of the family business is so powerful in some families that children looking for careers feel that they're obligated to be part of the business. I can't be a Delaney unless I'm part of Delaney Enterprises. How can I be? Because all the Delaney's are part of that. It's, it's, it's what the family stands for. Sometimes you have to release those children and say, please do what's best for you. Find your strengths, find your path and your passion, and we will support you all the way. You don't have to be part of Delaney Enterprises. That discussion can occur in the development of these family participation policies. And it, and it, it, is, it is important. Well, that would take away the sense that, and I have, I have sat across the table from people who have said that they're very worried that their decision uh, to, after, after graduation, say from university or college, to go uh, pursue their career in a different field will be felt as a repudiation of what the family business is doing and what the family has invested in. And, um, and, and they feel encumbered by that somehow. And, and those kinds of, I mean, that's, a, that's like an onion, right? Those are layers that start to build on one another. And if there's resentment about that, uh, it's gonna come out at Christmas 10 years from now, and it's gonna come out in an unpleasant way and not the way it was intended. And it's gonna communicate something totally different. And dealing with it early on, you know, the, the princess in the pea, taking the pea out from that bottom early on, uh, and and dealing with it is is uh, uh, much healthier for all of the ecosystems of the family business. Oh, very much so. And uh, let me you can go deeper into that subject around uh, identity, self-esteem, um, resentment. You know, all of the all of the psychological aspects that can manifest themselves from that from that uh, relationship with the family business. And so if we can have the conversations as part of the development of the family participation policy, perhaps we can alleviate some of the uncertainty and some of the, some of the, uh, yeah, the more negative aspects of being part of a, a business family. So you, you, you would enter, uh, how, would, how would that process and I don't want you to give away any trade secrets here, uh, but um, what would the process of developing that family participation agreement feel like? Because it, uh, uh, is it a series of meetings? Is it, uh, obviously we're in a pandemic right now. It's, it's, you're, you're still doing this work. It's probably being done over Zoom or over some other technological platform. But, um, you know, is this a, is, is this a series of family meetings? Is this a series of, uh, of uh, uh, documents that are shared? How, how, does it, how does it feel to get to, uh, in terms of process, how does it feel to get to that end point, whatever that end point looks like, where you're ready to say, okay, we've got our, we've got our foundational basis here to start doing some of the technical work. Um, yeah. I, I think the, one, of the, one of the benefits of this whole process is the, the collaboration amongst the family and, the, and the, the openness of the communication in a in a safe space that you know is my obligation my my role is to create that space and facilitate a conversation on sometimes very difficult issues so pretty much all of the families that enter into that family participation policy engagement have gone through some level of work with us before 
whether it, we have a, a meeting we call a family values and vision meeting, which is highly educational, highly interactive and, and collaborative, and really is part as a family circle uh, strategy. The family participation policy will be down the funnel a bit. So there's been some work. So there is an awareness, there's an understanding of, of where the family's going, where the business is going, and, and some of the challenges that it faces. So they have generally have context coming into this, why the family participation policies are, are good for them, why it's a strategy they've chosen. So given that awareness, I'm able to send out a bit of a questionnaire checklist on each of the elements of the family participation policy. So we, we have them do some homework. How do you feel about this area? And I, I give them some, some considerations. So I want them to reflect and, and, and you know, write down how they feel about uh, how family members can become employed by the business, how they can advance, how they should be, how performance should be managers, managed, how compensation should be established, leadership, ownership, et cetera. So they get an opportunity to, to reflect and to put down their own ideas. And we collect that from everybody and we, we actually plot it on a, on a matrix and we look, we look for similarities because we want to build on, on some harmony that the family may have. And we look for differences. We look for disparate ideas. We look for outlying ideas because those are the, those are the elements that we're going to eventually have to reconcile. We want to develop a uh, set of policies that um, that the whole family agrees to, that's, that reflects some harmony within the family. So the real work comes in uh, bringing that, all of that back to the table and helping the family see, here's what you agree on in each of these components of the, of the family participation policy. So these are, we're going to entrench these in here. Here's where you may differ a bit. And so we're, we're going to get into some pretty healthy discussions about what that means. My role is to promote that discussion, ask the right questions, but also to help them understand the implications of the policy itself. And again, you know, in, with an advisor that has experience in a lot of different areas, you're able to help them understand what could come of a policy like this. What are the examples of, of practical things that emanate from a policy like that? So if you can if you can break it down into into real real issues or real situations, then perhaps you start to influence a little bit on what that policy should be. And so with that, with that collaboration and, and under under you know the advisor's facilitation, you start to develop policies that are in harmony with the family's values and upon which they can agree. And so we work our way through that whole thing and develop the, the, the principles, the policies, and then produce a, a document um, of the policies themselves and um, put it back to the family. Maybe we need some follow-up meetings to, uh, to discuss a few more. Maybe we don't have complete agreement. Maybe there's uh, we need some more education or some understanding, but eventually we'll get to a document that the whole family says, yeah, that, that reflects our, our overall uh, beliefs and, and principles on how family members participate in this family business. And having someone like yourself there in the role of a facilitator 
is if it's possible so important because you are allowing you know say it's a, a mom and a dad who are looking at transitioning their 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 business to their three children somehow um that allows mom and dad to be participants in this policy development process as participants to not having to you know be mom and dad and not having to or or to be the owner you know they, they can very clearly wear the hat that they're intended to wear for the purposes of getting the most out of that conversation and having someone like yourself there as a facilitator allows them to take off that that dispute resolution hat and and just be able to sit at the table and say this is what i think is has been my experience is really important and and that allows them to be mom and dad, say, for example, and, and uh, um, end up with um, probably uh, more, more engagement, uh, meaningful and purposeful engagement on their own part in this process. Is that, a, is that something that you've experienced that, that having that facilitator, at least early on in these processes, helps the family build the skills they need to eventually do that themselves maybe, but also to come to better policies, uh, to have that person who's able to pull it up uh, to a 10,000 foot level if it gets a little warm in the room and, and say, you know, let's, let's gather again around what we're trying to do here. Or as you mentioned, here are the implications of that policy. The facilitator role is really important. The facilitator makes sure that everybody has a voice at the table and everybody's heard. And it's everybody at the table, their obligation, their responsibilities that come with respect and curiosity and an openness. Um, it can be a little unnerving for the parents because, in a sense, they surrender a little bit of power because we're giving the, the children a voice. But some of the the contributions by the children, and for the most part, I found are fascinating and they're very relevant and, and spot on. Um, so you get a combination of the wisdom and the experience of the senior generation with the, the energy and, and the passions of the next generation. You combine that in, in the funnel and that's just some magic that comes up. Now the parents then will have to, rather than using, you know, some parents, not us, not all your listeners. Some parents are a little controlling. They want to dictate how family members should come in. So they, they pronounce, so they put on edicts. In this case, you're actually collaborating with your children to develop a policy. So if you want to influence that policy as a parent, you've got to use your words, you've got to use your wisdom, you've got to help the children understand what it means and some of the policies that you think are important. So you, you actually see it's a heck of a dialogue and a great education for both generations. And I think you, the combination of the generations ends up with the best product. And yes, it's very difficult to facilitate your own process because it's better for you to be participating with everybody else as equals at the table. Well, and you bring them to, you bring them to the table so they can be heard. The facilitator, as you said, I mean, they're there, they're there to be heard. They're there for some reason. So they're there to be heard, I assume. And the facilitator really helps them be heard uh, in, in, a, in, an appro in the way they want to be heard, I suppose. And, and in, the, in the most uh, charitable and most uh, uh, beneficial, uh, beneficial way. Um, 
so a family participation policy, this is, or a family participation agreement, you mentioned that, you know, they're going to be signing something. Some people will go, oh my gosh, you know, is this a legal document? Is this, is this something that I'm going to be, I'm going to have to worry about down the road somewhere? How is this kind of agreement distinct from other family agreements? Say like a shareholder agreement, which clearly has legal implications, um, or, or even, you know, like a family constitution. What is a family participation agreement not intended to do? What, what are you trying not to accomplish here? So in, in many cases, uh, I think that the signature is not necessary. If there is a, a ceremonial or a, you know, um, if there's, you know, if a, if a signing is necessary for the, the element of closure that we, we all agree, then I, I would encourage that because I think it's, it's, I think as a ceremony, it's, it's great. We agree, we're in harmony, and we're going to abide by the guidelines of this family participation policy. But in by no means is it a legal document. It is not legally binding on any of the participants, and it's not meant to be. But I believe that it might have even a little more force than a legal document because it's morally binding. We've agreed. This, this, these policies reflect the values that our family is based on. And we've agreed with each other. We've we worked through this. We've worked through all of the elements of family member involvement in the business, and we've developed some guidelines around it. And we're fully prepared to live by those, both generations, in whatever situation you're in. And so I, I think the moral suasion there is is more powerful than than a legally binding document, at least within the family. And I, I think it gives families a, a a very good foundation for. Uh, mitigating the opportunity for conflict because there should be relatively little misunderstanding uh, and there should be real clarity around yeah, what it means to be part of this business. And so, you know, the next generation can make an informed choice. They can say, yeah, I like those policies that, that I, I'm willing to abide by them. I can do that. I can achieve that. Or they can say, yeah, I love my family, but you know, the business I don't think is for me. So I'm going to choose this path over here. Uh, so it, it is not a legal document, definitely not, but it can, its principles, the philosophies, the principles, the policies can lead to uh, legal documents or, or formal processes for sure. It's also a skill building uh, uh, process as well, because, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe the, uh, the founder generation transitioning to the the, the next uh, generation of owners, their own children, but those children are going to have children someday. And this is a skill set. This is a process that they can share with their own children. So the founders, grandchildren, um, so that good practice and best practices uh, are communicated educationally and become part of the DNA across generations. So the, the, this is something that probably becomes part of Christmas every year and Thanksgiving every year and, and you know, whatever the, the celebratory moments are in, in the family's life, this sort of process gets baked into it a little bit. Yes, I agree. And, and done well, this can this can survive many generations and they, they'll say that you know that generation my great-grandfather and great-grandmother they did a great job in developing out these policy guidelines and i think they should be reviewed every once in a while i think to your point they are it is educational and i think that each generation should probably have a have a 
you know, a robust review of those policies to make sure they, they make sense and they stand the test of time. I do, I do, however, believe that that would be an exercise separate from Thanksgiving and separate from Christmas, mm. which are purely family circle uh, events and celebrations. And I, I think in, in good governance, good structure, you would have that as an activity that would be separate and distinct from family celebrations. Absolutely. And, and, and you would, uh, uh, it would just simply become something that is as, you know, in terms of things that we're going to do as a family, it becomes as uh, uh, regular as those kinds of events was probably what I should have better said. Uh, I, I, I completely agree with you uh, uh, that way. And, and, and I was interested, you know, you said that it becomes a morally binding uh, agreement. There's also something to be said for the, you know, the ceremony and the signing. Yeah, it doesn't create legal obligations. But that act of that public act of commitment that people make to something by s making a ceremony around it. Uh, right. symbols, symbols are powerful, aren't they? And yeah, I agree. That's, it's, that's not a bad uh, that's not a bad way to conclude the exercise for sure. Yeah, people feel the weight of that. So I suspect, Brent, you've been involved with some family businesses where the existence of a participation agreement would really have helped to avoid uh, or at least minimize something negative that that had happened. Is there is there a couple of examples or maybe one really demonstrative example you might have where a family participation agreement did some really heavy lifting? for the family uh, and, and either avoided a jam or got them out of a jam or, or just did something really amazing that maybe was unexpected or uh, uh, particularly uh, rewarding. Yeah, there is one in particular that was very powerful and stands out in my mind where I was working with a family that was transitioning a business and it was, uh, I think, four four sons that they had all boys in the, in the next generation and they were transferring the business and, and, and I think thought three of the boys were going to stay with the business and other had per, pursued a different path. And so we went through the family participation policies and a few of the other exercises or strategies around transition. And I got a call from one of the, one of the sons, one of the next generations one day and, and can I come and see you? Yes, absolutely. So in the, in the fellow comes, and uh, started to explain to me um, that he didn't want to be an owner. He didn't like the obligations, didn't like the, uh, didn't like the stress, the pressures that would come with ownership, and he preferred to live his life in, in a different way. And, and it was very emotional for him. He was in tears. And, um, but by going through those policies, he understood what it meant to be an owner. And he felt that he was, he felt a bit of obligation, but then I think he also felt that maybe he was released from that by the families, the policies they've established on ownership. So we were able to go back into the family and resolve that. And, you know, I, I think probably saved that young man from a life that really wouldn't have been much fun for him. And he was able to still be involved in the business in, in a way that was appropriate for him and pursue other pursuits and not having to be an owner or a partner with uh, his other family members. So it was, I, I think in that respect, the process itself, rather than the policies, but the process um, took him to a place where he could actually make good decisions on what his path should be. And that process, Brent, 
also gave him the gift of someone like yourself being available, you know, that, that valve that he could go to and, and release that pressure, release that concern. Because if, if someone like yourself, if hadn't been in that process, uh, he may not have, the inertia of the planning may have just kept going and, and then he's in that stuck situation. So, so, you know, as I'm, you probably undervalue your, your, your own role there. Um, that the, the conversation certainly gave him the, the permission to, to, to go out on terms that everyone else said they agreed with. But I think having the process in the first place introduced someone like yourself into the ecosystem that also gave him that place to go where he could. And, and you said, you know, part of your role is to create safe space. Uh, obviously you did that and, and your role, the, 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 that, that, the, having a process, making deliberate steps on the on, on developing a, a transition policy in the family, gave this particular person the the, the freedom and, and the but the ability as much as anything else to um, uh, to, to to have a place to go and, and say yeah I, I need to get out I, I need to exercise this yeah. and he was you know he was caught in that that obligation. You know, he initially started out, I'm obligated to be an owner. And then maybe through the process, he started to understand that, okay, I don't have to be an owner. Yet it was still emotional because the business had such a powerful impact on, and this was a great family. And they were, they liked each other. They're a good functioning family. Um, so the, the draw or, you know, the presumed obligation could be very powerful in that respect. I think going through some of those discussions maybe gave him the realization I can, there is a different way for me if I, if I so choose. It may have been a little difficult for them, for him to communicate directly with his family. So I kind of acted as a medium or a conduit for him to be able to do that. And, and that is, um, you know, we've, we've commented sort of generally that building communication and building governance into each of the three circles, uh, each system has its own culture of communication, its own culture of governance. Um, that is a clear example of where bothering to to identify, build, and, and enrich those uh, those structures did good. Uh, it, it it created a, an, an outlet valve uh, for somebody who otherwise might not have felt they they could have. Um, uh, uh, could have uh, done done well for themselves. So, Brent, if if a listener is thinking that a family participation agreement would benefit their enterprise planning, um, and, and this is something you know, I think this is a fascinating topic, and I and I think we could probably we won't, but we could probably spend hours on it. Um, because there's so many, you know, you talked about employment, you talked about, about uh, social capital, you talked about, we're really just scratching the, the, the surface of this. Um, are there some steps, though, that somebody who's listening to this, this podcast says, I would be very interested in, in uh, getting to the point of doing a family participation agreement. You've mentioned that this is sort of midway down the funnel that you've described. Um, if they want to get started on something like this and they have not gone down the funnel with, with their advisor, what are some things they could do today or tomorrow to, to, to get started on building a, a, a family participation policy uh, and, and some sort of structure around that? Where can they begin? 
I think it, it all begins with an understanding of, uh, luckily, over the past several decades, I think beginning in the 80s, that there's been a body of knowledge that's been growing on uh, family business and, and the, the, the systems theory around family business and, and how families can cope with their special, special worlds. And, and so having an awareness, doing a bit of reading and studying and attending workshops that, that help them understand the top of the funnel first, the, the, the dynamics of, of families and the, the intersection of that three circle, those three circles and, and how, how you can build methods to cope with that. That good theoretical understanding of why we're like this because once they understand the three circle model, they'll, there is an aha moment in there where the light bulb goes on and, oh yeah, I felt that. Oh yes, we do that. And, uh, and then also not only the challenging parts of it, but the very powerful pieces of it where the family's value system can be reflected in, a, in, a, in the business and in the, the way they manage wealth um, is very powerful. So recognizing the strengths of the system as well as its challenges. I think that's one of the, the first parts because I, I think you have to have that good foundational understanding of, of family systems theory and, and family business dynamics. Um, so, and that's, you know, the, the policies are, you know, the elements are fairly clear. Overall philosophy, uh, employment of family members, conduct of family members, and ownership by family members. Those are the those are the major major segments. But I, I I honestly do think that it would would be somewhat difficult for families to develop those policies themselves. Um, they might be able to get some context by doing the studying and the research and understanding the foundational elements. But then how to link that into the actual policies themselves would be a little bit difficult. So. I recently began an engagement where we will be doing a family participation policy exercise, but it started with um, it, it's, it starts with a clarity of the owners or the founders themselves on what their personal goals are. After all, you know, typically that generation built the business, and then they should, and you know, their wishes and needs should be clearly reflected in, in the outcomes. But then we'll bring the family in for a, a values and vision meeting to educate them on on all you know the theory behind uh, family business systems and and the journey of, of transition and what and then help them develop you know kind of recognize the family values and develop a vision for the family that gives them a basis and then we can actually move into the development of a family participation plan. This particular family is early in their journey. Their children are, are relatively young, but they understand that the journey can be bumpy and they want to lay, lay a good foundation for as their children become of age and, and have to make their choices as to whether or not they become part of the business. They want to, they want to preempt any potential for conflict and misunderstanding. So they're, they're early in the process and I, I, I admire what they're doing. I think they're going to really enjoy the journey. So, like I said, it's, it, I don't, it sounds self-serving, but I, I don't believe this is necessarily a do-it-yourself exercise. I think you can improve the exercise by, uh, by reading and being curious, but I think the actual process of developing those policies needs some assistance. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that is, uh, that's a great answer. I mean, that sometimes, sometimes the, the things that we need to do are things that we need to do with uh, the, the skilled hands of others that have, uh, pr- that are professionals in this, in this space and have the experience. And I would, I would tend to agree with you. I don't think this is something you should be doing on your own. I really like though, that you, you mentioned that there are, you can educate yourself a little bit, not necessarily um, to the point that you should feel that you necessarily have the skill set right away to execute on creating a, uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of policies and documents. But but you can appreciate the need and the benefit uh, and and what it might feel like and what you might expect. Um, what are some, are there some books or some resources that are, you've encountered that are available uh, for people to start that reading or to begin to educate themselves a, a little bit more uh, about what, what this might feel like if they decide this is something for them? Yeah, and there is, and there's a, there is a growing body of knowledge, and I'd say it's actually exciting to see the research and the, and the, the, uh, the content that's being developed out there in the field. And it, you can Google family business, honestly, and, and it'll produce a, a result, a listing of resources that's, that's just huge. One of, the, one of the resources that I do like is a, the company is called Family Business Publications, and you can, you can go on Amazon or any of the bookseller, bookseller sites and, and search on Family Business Publications. And then once you find one, you go in deeper and, and you can get the entire series. And so there's a series of, of very easy reads, short books uh, on a lot of the elements that, that it takes to run a successful family business in a, in a business family. And some of the two of the authors, uh, one is Craig Aronoff and, and another author is John Ward. Sometimes they collaborate and there's a few other authors in there, but titles like uh, Family Business Governance, uh, The Family Constitution, uh, Developing Family Business Policies, which you know, kind of links right in with our topic today. Mm-hmm. Uh, family business ownership: how to be a how to be a good family business owner. Uh, family business succession, which is kind of a, an overall catch-all. But these are are you know relatively short books, uh, nice easy reads, very practical, and, and a, a great uh, great educational resource to become familiar with uh, with the field. Well, and I think once you've read, and, and I've read some of those books, once you've read some of those, you begin to appreciate that, that this is a, um, that having a set of hands like your own to, to help, to help guide you through uh, what, what sometimes is going to be easy conversations and very natural and, but, but every once in a while you're going to run up against a, a, a thorny bush and uh, you're going to need some help making sure that you stay on the path to go around that bush or over that bush or under that bush or cut the bush down, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever has to be done. Having the, 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 the benefit of someone like yourself who understands that and, and, and having the benefit of process that's being guided towards an ultimate purpose will keep the keep people on that path. So I appreciate that you shared those those books, and and it is true there is quite a bit of uh, of uh, uh, both uh, academic research that's available now, but also very sort of retail level commercial uh, accessible uh, documents that are in, in books that are available as well. And I think what will happen, Brent, is people read these books is that 
they will feel that, that they'll see their own family in the context of the stories and, and the examples in these books. And they will appreciate that this is uh, something that's valuable, but they'll also appreciate that there are valuable people like yourself out there that can, can assist them. Is this Brent, um, you know, we both sort of work in a variety of different uh, uh, business fields. Is this something that um, is, relevant to the agricultural area as well as so so someone who owns a family farm we've sort of said family enterprise along the way but is this any business uh, you know whether it's an agricultural operation or an industrial operation service operation it is really the, the, the principles and concepts transcend the industry boundaries I mean, each each of the industry segments will approach it in a different way because their their business operations and the the linkage between the family and the business itself, and and the ownership of that business uh, is different in some of them. And uh, I've worked a lot with in the agriculture industry, and the connection between the, the family and the farm is powerful. They live there. Pretty much every child that grows or is born to a farm family will work on that farm for a, you know, a good portion of their early lives. And so they become connected with it. Some uh, recognize that they're not, they shouldn't belong there. Others are passionate about being there. So agriculture might be a little bit different in the, in the strength of the connection between the family and the business itself. But saying that, other, other businesses are very similar. Sometimes the restaurant business is an all hands on deck situation. Other, other businesses like some manufacturing. So they can be, you know, very similar. So, but the, the principles are the same and the way families and the business interact are, are very similar. So uh, beyond changing up the vernacular and, and having knowledge of the industry itself, the, the principles that, are, that we use in order to help families through their journey are, are, are the same. And you having mentioned that, having that specific industry knowledge really, really does help because you can speak the language, you understand their special challenges from the business point of view. And uh, so I, I think that's, that's part of the breadth of the advisor's experience. Well, in, and you mentioned, you know, the farm families often have, uh, uh, an already strong family uh, engagement in the business itself. That, that is, uh, I think, an important thing to highlight because that is both a strength and obviously, um, the, you know, anything, anytime you're describing something as having strength, um, it has both resilience and an ability to push back. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's a strength, but it's also something that has to be managed as well. Um, and, and so I can see where uh, in any field where there's family involvement, it's going to be critical. You were describing a situation where your client was early on in their, in their business. Uh, uh, kids were relatively young, maybe not even old enough to, to, to work yet. Um, some, some people, some entrepreneurs start up their businesses they're not really thinking about whether they're going to transition this business to uh, uh, to their children someday. They're just hoping it stays, it survives uh, and, and thrives. Um, this is, I think, for them too. This kind of process is, it's different, uh, but 
it's possible that whether they even have gotten to the point of being able to see that far down the road that this is going to be an intergenerational enterprise, they might still benefit from some of these exercises, whether it's a family participation agreement, obviously, they don't have family yet to participate to, but just thinking about values and vision early on is probably a very positive tool for the transition, future transition of any business, whether it's sold to a third party and being built for that or, or whether it's uh, eventually going to go to family. So then that, that's, that's spot on because, you know, the work that we do is try to help families run better businesses or entrepreneurs run better businesses. And if, if you're able to do that, you're actually preparing that business for a transition to the next generation and giving them the best opportunity for success. But at the same time, you're actually making that business more attractive for a third party to come along and buy it. So you're actually creating yourself a choice. So if one doesn't work out or if one direction is more desirable or more powerful than the other, you can go either way because a lot of the preparation steps are, are similar, very much so. Well, Brent, I can't imagine a better spot to to conclude our conversation. I want to thank you for uh, the, the the gift of your time and of your wisdom. And uh, I'm going to uh, post on the show notes uh, when this goes up on the various platforms, your LinkedIn connection and uh, where our listeners can find you. And uh, I'll also put up a link to some of those books that you mentioned uh, that are generally available uh, just so that people can, can get pointed in the right direction if they're looking at some uh, uh, predicate documents that they want to read. Um, hopefully we'll have you on the show again because we, I think we probably raised more questions than, than we answered and that's a good thing at the end of the day. Yeah, that was my pleasure. The time went by very fast I, and you're right. This, this conversation could continue for quite some time. My, um, as just an aside, a, a lot of the statistics that are published out there are, are on the, um, you know, the family businesses that don't make it to the next generation. The statistics are, are not very good on intergenerational transition of a family business, but there are success stories out there. And if you, if you find that success story, if you, you can observe what they have done, for example, in Ontario, there's a company called Burnbury Farms. And right now it's led by a second, gener- second or third generation. Margaret Hudson is the CEO. Yes. She's, she's fascinating. She's knowledgeable. She's taken it on herself to understand this, all the things that we've been talking about. And by all appearances, they have managed successful transitions and are going through another one. Just to look at their story and see what can be possible is beautiful. And there's other examples out there. So the work that FEAs do, that you do, Chris, and that I'm trying to do and others in our field, we're trying to change the odds. And, and so hopefully we've got the, uh, the methods and the knowledge to, uh, to help families be able to do that. Well, I think we do. And, and Brent, the, you, know, you, you raise a really good point. I mean, too often people react and decide they need to do this kind of work because they read a horrible story in the newspaper about some catastrophe that happened to, to a business or a family. And, and yes, you should respond that way to that, but there's a lot of good stuff that's going on. And that example you just gave is a great, uh, a a great example. And, and uh, there are resources out there to hear those happy stories too. And, and I think there's a theme that runs through those happy stories and it, it, it is that, they are, these families have decided that it's, it's, it's going to be 
ensuring the success from one generation to the next is going to need help. And uh, they've worked with people like yourself or they uh, have uh, developed processes to help corral the three circles in, in, in one successful direction. They've made the effort, they've, they've put in the sweat equity to, to build effective processes. And that, that probably is a consistent theme. <laughs> to be to be clear, I, I did not do any work with Burn Brave Farms, <laughs> but I, I absolutely admire Margaret Hudson, and she could she could do this work without question. She would be very good at it. <laughs> well, and 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 often the stories that the uh, those those types of uh, those types of entrepreneurs tell are the the best stories of all. Uh, you know, one of the you mentioned uh, the the Canadian Association of Family Enterprise, which is now the Family Enterprise Exchange. One of the great uh, I used to be involved with the local board and 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 uh, programming events. We did that together, and and um, uh, I, I think a lot of times the real the nuggets of wisdom sometimes came out in the stories i mean it still has to be it still has to be remanufactured and and fit into the the the, the specific enterprise of that of that business owner it has to be able to be replicable and, and but um the stories of success are just as important as the stories of failure, if not more. We should sure. be telling more of those. <laughs> I agree, absolutely. Brent, thank you so much for all your time. Uh, and as I said, I'm gonna post all that stuff to the show notes. Uh, so uh, thank you for, for spending uh, uh, what's been, I did fly by an, uh, an incredible amount of your, generously incredible amount of your time here on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. And uh, I, I hope you have a great week. My pleasure, Chris. Let's do it again sometime. You will. Yeah, perfect. Thanks to my friend Brent Van Paris for spending so much time this week in his discussion on the family business ecosystem and advising a family business and specifically what to do or expect if your family business needs to establish and create a family participation agreement. More information on Brent and the services he provides will be posted on the show notes for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us this week and we'll see you next week on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast.